0: Welcome, everybody, back to Mental Illness and Me for another awesome episode. Wait, I'm going to redo that. Hold on a second. (laughs) Sorry. This podcast addresses serious topics such as suicide that may be upsetting to some. Please use discretion while listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are here today for another episode of Mental Illness and Me, and this time we are joined by Brielle. And I'm going to have her start, as always, and tell us a little bit about herself and the things that she loves. Brielle, it's all
1: you. Hey, um, I'm Brielle, and I'm 27. I grew up in Springville, Utah. I went to BYU, um, and I majored in chemistry. Uh, And I worked as a chemist for a little bit, and then I decided I wanted to become a doula. So I'm a birth and postpartum doula, and I actually coach. It's kind of like a birth coach. So I um, help guide people through the process of uh, having a baby and labor and immediate postpartum afterwards. And I love that. I love anything birth related. Um, I also love spelunking or caving and ballroom dancing, reading books.
0: What's the difference between a midwife and a
1: doula? So a midwife does all the medical things. A midwife is similar to a doctor being the care provider
0: uh-huh.
1: um, and a doula does nothing medical. So we're not allowed to do blood pressure, temperature, you know, any of those things. We can't give medical advice because we're not trained to do so. And, and we don't do like um, the vaginal, vaginal exams to see, you know, how dilated people are. We don't do any of that. We're only there for informational, physical, and emotional support during the whole process. Like during pregnancy, if people need information, wow, delivery. So I actually go, if as a birth doula, I go to the hospital or birth center with you, or if you're doing a home birth, I go come to your home and um, support you however you need it. Sometimes it's coaching the husband's. Or partners figuring out how they can be more involved in the labor and delivery process, uh, teaching them different positions that can be useful, different comfort measures, coping mechanisms to have the partner be more involved. The so baby blues is very common in the first two weeks. About 80% of women have baby blues. You know, be crying all the time, angry, upset. You have no, re- no reason for it that you perceive, or it's just your hormones trying to regulate. But after that, they actually in the trainings and I've also done a postpartum doula training as well. And so I'm trained to watch for certain signs and symptoms so that I can help refer them to a provider because some people don't feel comfortable bringing it up to their doctor or sometimes their doctor or provider kind of blows it off like, oh, you're fine. It's just the baby blues. You're fine. And but even though they're three months postpartum, they're like, hey, I'm not doing OK. And they're like, well, you'll get used to it. It's fine. You know, uh-huh.
0: Well, that's cool. I think that might be something that even for those who don't go the midwife or doula route, it would be really cool to have uh, resources sooner than, you know, six weeks at the first checkup for the mom.
1: Yeah. And even as a postpartum doula, you don't have to, it's not this massive thing. It's just, you know, you book a couple hours and I come to your house and help with, you know, caring for the baby if you need to take a nap or if you need to take a shower, because some babies won't let you put them down, and helping teach you comfort measures for the baby and soothing techniques for a newborn, basic bottle feeding questions. I know if there's other problems, I know the resources to refer you out to. If you have questions and need someone, postpartum doulas are fantastic.
0: Tell me a little bit about your own uh, experiences with mental illness and maybe give us a little bit of a history of when it started for you.
1: So I was first diagnosed with depression in early 2013. I was in college, uh, at BYU and I had a friend that was saying, Hey, you know, and I knew she had depression and she said, Hey, I, I really think you should go see a therapist. And I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm just, it's, I'm just stressed. And she said, yeah, I know you're stressed, but I think it's more than that. Um, and I finally listened to her. She's like, just take this little survey. I was like, fine, whatever. If it'll make you stop bugging me, I'll take this survey. And at the end of the survey, they're like, we very highly encourage you to call <laughs> and set up an appointment. Yeah. And i was like,
0: oh, what were the signs and things that she was seeing in you that made her recommend this survey to you?
1: Well, so she was seeing that, you know, I kept saying that I was having a hard time and kept saying, you know, I just thought it was because I was stressed because I had a hard major. Um, Chemistry is pretty difficult. And she said, well, it's, you're not just stressed, you know, you're, you're not sleeping super well, you're exhausted all the time. Um, You're pretty, you have a pretty sad outlook on a lot of things. And for her, it's just because she had depression. She knows it's kind of, it's interesting. Um, You can see it in other people's eyes. I can see it in other people now that I know. And so she could see that something was off and she could tell that there were things that I wasn't sharing. And so she just kind of gently encouraged me to go get help. And I'm glad I did. It was interesting at first and they didn't really recommend, I mean, I didn't love my first therapist, but I didn't know that you could switch. (laughs) Right. And that's, I guess, one thing that I would recommend to anyone is, you know, go to a couple appointments. If you're just not vibing with that therapist or you don't feel like it's helpful at all, switch therapists. After a while, I finally had a, I had a therapist there that said, you really probably need to be on medication and I said, no, I, I can't do, you know, all the stigmas with medication and you're going to be on it your whole entire life and you'll get addicted to them. And then it just makes it worse. You need more medication. That's all that I thought that antidepressants were. Cause that's what I've been told my whole life or, you know, um, you see the depression, the antidepressant commercials on TV and they're like, oh, your whole life is horrible and you can do absolutely nothing. And I was like, well, I'm still functional, so I don't need that. But there's, it's interesting because there's varying types of depression, which I didn't know. I just thought if you had depression that, well, first of all, I thought that depression wasn't a thing because you're just sad and you can not be sad and it's fine. I had all these misconceptions about what depression and anxiety were. And
0: yeah, a lot of people just think that it means you can't get out of bed and you can't function that you just stay in a dark room all day. And that's what depression is. And that is definitely not the case.
1: Yeah. And for some people it is, and I've had days like that. Um, But for the most part, at least early on before I really knew when I was first uh, getting diagnosed, I wasn't like that. I was fully functional. I had a, you know, I had a job, I was going to school. I, I hung out with friends and, you know, I I didn't have those kind of symptoms.
0: The first time that somebody suggested that I take medication, a medical professional, I just said, sorry, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny to look back at that. Now I was just so confident that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And now it's, I can't imagine my life without it.
1: You have to kind of be ready for it, right? You have to be at a place where you're willing to accept that kind of help. Usually you hit kind of a breaking point and realize that maybe that's something that you should do, or you want something in your life to be different. And so you're willing to try different things. Things kind of flipped, uh, June, 2013. I got really sick. So I finally made a doctor's appointment and they couldn't find anything wrong. And they just said, Oh, it's, you need to go to a gastroenterologist. And they saw nothing wrong. I didn't have celiac. They did a biopsy. Um, they couldn't find anything wrong. Months go by and I would get kind of a new symptom almost every month. And, I was practicing with my ballroom partner because we were competing and my leg started to shake a little bit and I was like, oh, it's fine. We've just been, you know, we've been practicing six days a week for a couple hours, but within four hours, my leg completely collapsed out from underneath me, my left leg, and I couldn't walk. I had someone take me to the emergency room and they couldn't find anything. And they said, well, here's a number for a neurologist. I gave up my spot on the ballroom team dropped out of a bunch of my classes, kept going to some of them, but just had crutches that I was hobbling around campus with. I couldn't walk unassisted without crutches or a cane for eight months.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Um, So that didn't help my depression. (laughs) Right. And I felt like I was very alone because a lot of my friends were scared because it was, you know, progressively getting worse and there was nothing that anyone could find. But I just felt so lonely, like no one wanted I was living at home at the time because I didn't live very far from BYU. No one wanted to come see me, you know.
0: Do you think they just didn't know what to say or they Um, just couldn't relate or what do you think?
1: I think both. I think it's hard. It would be, from their perspective, it would be terrifying to have your friend be totally fine and then all of a sudden they can't walk. I think it's kind of instinctual to kind of pull away. You know, dating was not great during that time. I had a friend pass away later in 2013, one of my best friends died and I didn't handle that super well. Um, And it was hard for me because a lot of the other people that we were mutual friends with, they seemed to move on with their life. And I was like, how are you guys even functioning? This is a horrible thing that happened. Uh, End of 2014 to mid 2015, um, I was actually in an abusive relationship. Uh, And they don't it didn't start that way. And I always, you know, you watch the news or you watch TV programs and you ever and you always wonder, like, why people stay in a relationship because it just doesn't logically make sense. Um, If you're getting hurt, you leave. Right. Right. Logically, you would think that. But the problem was um, it didn't start like that it was just slow kind of over time. I mean, it was all, all the types of abuse, um, emotional, verbal, physical, um, and the, it led to sexual abuse as well. He had me convinced I was crazy and that I was being too sensitive and right all, all these different things. And because I was sick at the time, you know, he kept telling me, Oh, you know, you're so lucky that you're with me because no one else would put up with your illness and it was someone I trusted. And so I started to believe him on like, yeah, I really am lucky. Oh, you're right. I am being a little bit crazy right now. Oh, it's probably my medicine, you know, cause I switched medication. So I'm sorry. Like it's my fault, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think that happens a lot with people who suffer from mental illness is they begin to doubt themselves a little bit because they know that their brain can sometimes be irrational mm-hmm. and they know that there's an imbalance there. And so they think, well, maybe, Maybe this is just in my head. And that's a really scary thing.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I had depression and anxiety, so I was like, yeah, that could be a thing. And I was trying all these different medications. And so, yeah, maybe I was just being crazy because I was going through withdrawals. But the other problem was no one else saw it ever. He was a totally different person behind closed doors. So everyone, everyone loved him and thought he was the most amazing person ever. And he was the nicest, most caring because that's what he portrayed and that's what I that's why I initially even was dating him. So this is a book by um Rachel Den Hollander. It's called What Is a Girl Worth.
0: Uh-huh.
1: It's a fantastic book. Um it's about um the USA gymnastics team and all the gymnasts that were abused. And so she wrote a book based on, you know, the trial and things that happened in her life and the impact it had on her. And she says I was too terrified and ashamed, too confused to understand back then. But the price for not understanding then is that no one understands now. What I thought was my fault then most think is my fault now. I'd frozen. I'd trusted. I thought I had a dirty mind for thinking something was wrong. Almost no one understood those dynamics. All they could see was a girl who didn't fight back. So she must have wanted it. My fault. She says how survivors could be unaware of what was happening to them unable to trust their own instincts, that victims' responses, especially in the moment, aren't just fight or flight, there's also freeze. Few people really understand that third response, even though it is arguably the most prevalent. I knew what it felt like to be so overwhelmed with shock, confusion, and fear that I literally shut down to try to survive the reality, and I knew that many survivors would, as I had, blame themselves and be blamed for that response. They needed to know this reaction was common, and it didn't mean they'd consented to the abuse.
0: Wow. So is that similar to what happened with you?
1: Yeah. And all growing up, I was always taught, you know, you need to be careful because you're a girl and you need to walk, you know, make sure you walk in well-lit areas, take a self-defense class. Those are all great, except that no one ever told me that it could be someone that I know.
0: Or somebody that you even trust too.
1: Mm -hmm. Or someone that I trust. And that's actually where the most cases come from. It's not usually a stranger. All the all the things they teach you in the self-defense classes, it's meant to hurt someone. I would try to throw him off of me, right? But I didn't follow through with the with the part that you're supposed to hurt them. Right. Because I didn't want to hurt him because I loved him and I trusted him and I didn't want to hurt him. My life was kind of imploding. I just thought it was because of my chronic illness. Right. And so I just thought I was getting worse and no one could figure it out. And so all these things that are symptoms of PTSD, I also just thought was my chronic illness getting worse. That relationship ended in 2015. I didn't get diagnosed with PTSD until until April 2016. I just, I didn't talk to anyone for almost a year about it. And it just, my life kept getting worse and worse and symptoms kept getting worse. But I was in therapy in April of 2016. And I remember... The last couple appointments, I kept telling my therapist, like my depression's getting worse. And he kept giving me things to do. And I was on an antidepressant. And so he just kept giving me things to do to help with depression, exercise, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm doing all of that. And it's getting way worse. And like my memory's really bad. And I'm like really jumpy. I'm really nervous. I'm, you know, if someone comes up behind me, I'm super scared. And it was an accident that I even told my therapist. And I don't remember what I said, but I said something and he sat straight up, put both feet on the floor and he looked at me and he said, what did you say? I need you to repeat that. And I said, no, it's not a big deal. Like I shouldn't have even said it. He said, no, that's a big deal. And the reason your depression isn't getting better is because it's not depression. You have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, no, I don't. That's something that you get when you go to war. Like if you've seen people die and people's limbs blown off, right? you know, like that's that's when you get that. And he's like, no, (laughs) yeah." just because you've had a traumatic thing happen doesn't mean you have PTSD, but you can, um, if you've had a traumatic event happen, you can have PTSD from it and it doesn't always have to be immediate. So he said, you actually need trauma therapy. That's why you're not doing well. You need trauma therapy because this regular therapy we're doing for depression isn't going to treat your PTSD. And my husband actually found my therapist that I'm with now, he said, why don't we try this? Because they, she's a sex therapist and specialized in trauma therapy with Uh EMDR. Even just having someone around me at all times, not necessarily even being intimate, but um, being intimate is a struggle. And that's something that my husband and I knew would be a struggle going in. We didn't understand how much of a struggle it would be. And when you live with someone, there are things that, you know, he, I would just be doing the dishes and he would come up behind me and give me a hug and I would immediately have a panic attack. So it's been a lot of figuring out what my triggers are. But now with this therapist she recommended a workbook, it's a, it's a self-compassion workbook. It's called Mindful Self-Compassion. And it's actually a book, I think by Kristen Neff. I didn't, I didn't know, everyone just always said, treat yourself like you would treat a friend, but I, I, couldn't, I didn't know how to do that. And so this workbook is actually step-by-step, like how to start having more self-compassion. So how have you and
0: your husband navigated through the difficulties of your mental illness? What helps for you guys?
1: Uh, Patience (laughs) is number one, but it's really hard. It's hard on him, but we just make sure that, um, and my therapist will sometimes have him come in. So we'll do a couple session so that he's also taken care of. It's not just me because of course it's important for me to do therapy because I have PTSD, but for him, it's important because he needs to have support.
0: I wanted to ask what you've learned from this experience and what you're grateful for, even though there's been a lot of trial.
1: I'm, I'm grateful for everything I've learned about it, to be honest. And having gone through the experiences I've had and the sexual abuse. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And of course I wish it didn't happen to me, but um, I've actually learned very valuable things from that. Had I not had that experience, number one, I don't think I would have married my husband. I don't think I would have even given him kind of the time of day because I was typically attracted to people that kind of were a little bit more mean
0: that's really interesting that that experience kind of helped alter in your mind what was a good companion and helped you to find one that was
1: really supportive. That's awesome. It did I didn't realize, I mean, and you know, I thought that I had a better understanding of what relationships were, but I mean the media and movies don't do us a great service. Yeah. <laughs> I even told him on our fourth date, I said, Oh, by the way, I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD. So He's like, don't you have a chronic illness too? And I was like, oh yeah, there's that. Okay, cool. I'll never see you again. And he called me the next day and He's like, do you want to go see a movie? So because of all that, I've learned, you know, I wouldn't have met my husband, but also that's actually why I became a doula because people that have experienced sexual assault or sexual abuse, they don't have resources. Typically, they don't tell people because, of course, it's a very personal thing for people that are survivors of sexual assault and sexual abuse. um, Childbirth can be very traumatizing, especially because they're like, oh, are you dilated? Let's check. And they don't really ever ask permission. They don't. And so some people don't even remember that it's been an issue or they were abused as a child and they don't remember until they are pregnant. And then all of a sudden things come flooding back either while they're pregnant or during delivery. yeah. And then some people don't ever wanna have kids again because it's so traumatizing. And that's one thing that after my abuse, I said, I don't know if I ever wanna have kids because it's not gonna be a good experience. I'm a lot better now than I have been in years. I still have some flare ups, but it's because I haven't completely finished the trauma therapy. I've actually reprocessed quite a few of my memories. They don't bother me anymore.
0: What would you say to people who are struggling right now with ptsd what would be your parting thoughts
1: for them Uh, you're not crazy (laughs) and you're not alone then there are things you can do it's not a lifelong disorder yes uh the triggers can occasionally flare up throughout your life so it's something that will never completely forever go away instead of it being crippling you can learn to deal with those triggers and so it doesn't impact your life as severely. Right. And so there's there's a lot of resources and I would suggest looking into those or reaching out to a therapist that knows what the resources are and then just have someone you can talk to. Just someone safe to talk to and to say, look, this is hard for me right now. And just to be patient with yourself and to be kind. Special thanks to Daniel Sowards for
0: the audio editing, to Carrie Randall for the graphic art, and to Shiny Head Productions for the original music.